From across the pond, this is Off the Record with Big C. Thank you, Shaggy. And this is Big C, as you correctly pointed out. And this is Off the Record, and it is episode 111 of this week. We have a special guest, of course, always special from Down Under. It's Austin Dunmore, who's joined me today from Melbourne. Singer, songwriter, guitarist, Austin. Hi, Austin. How are you doing? Hi, Colin. I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, always uh, love being on the show. So um, thank you for inviting me uh, this week. Always a pleasure having your insight, your insight onto, onto, uh, onto, our, into, into albums, artists, years, whatever it might be. We've we started a maybe a new thing now, as you're well aware, Austin, because you've had a, a little bit of time to prep for them. Um, we thought this could be an ongoing thing, actually, maybe. We're going to concentrate on specific albums. So you've chosen a couple of albums, a couple of your favourite albums. I think I'm yeah, right in right. saying that. They, uh, they and are I've both chosen, in my top ten. Yeah, okay. And I've cho- I don't know about a top ten, but I've, I've chosen a couple of albums. Now, the two I've chosen, we'll come on to Austin's in a sec, two I've chosen will be, needless to say, I'm going Beatles. So I'm going the debut album. We're talking UK, which I think most of the historians would say that's the way to look at it with the Beatles. UK releases, the way that they intended to be released, not, none of this Capitol Records just chopping together and adding songs in. So the debut album, Please Please Me. Uh, and then I'm going to go forward a couple of decades to the 80s and a favourite album of mine by Squeeze. Don't know whether you know much about them. We'll come on to that uh, later on, and that will be East Side Story. However, first of all, you're going you're gonna to talk about Band on the Run by Wings as well, actually. That's your second album. Your first album is Tell Us. Every Picture Tells a Story uh, from 1971 <laughs> by Rod Stewart. His what, third album, was it? Uh, third solo album. Yeah, that's third right. Third solo album, yeah, yeah, yeah. A favourite of yours? Uh, well, favourite of uh, of my parents. Uh, so I grew up with it. I've been listening to it pretty much <laughs> since it was put out, probably. I was probably listening to it as a two-year-old, I, I imagine. Um, yeah, it's like me yeah. listening to the Beatles when I was about three. Yeah, and that's that's how it was for a, a lot of us, right? Uh, especially um, uh, Gen Xers uh, who grew up with uh, uh, boomer or, or slightly, you know, uh, pre-boomer parents um, who, who grew up on, on rock and roll. Uh, we, uh, we raided their record collections. Uh, sometimes they Absolutely. raided ours, but it, mostly it was the other way around. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, what is it about every picture tells a story that grabs your attention then anything specific? Yeah, I, I started to, um, to think about music in the last decade or so in terms of uh, traditions. I've probably been like, that's probably something that's been uh, a a developing perspective for about 20 years now, pretty much since I gave up on contemporary music around, 
the early 2000s, like the the turning of the 21st century. I was looking for the next big thing, and and I, I, I gradually realized there wasn't a next big thing that that <sighs> there had been a passing of an age. And and so I started kind of investigating uh, the, uh, the the backgrounds of, of artists and and you know the album recording and that's the uh, that's the approach that I'm going to take with uh, with, with these two records uh, today okay. um, because I think you can do a lot of uh, lyrical analysis and background to to you know how, like you know why a song was written and what it was about and interpretation all that sort of thing I'm not really um so focused on that i like i i'm more interested in the the musician's perspective because i've been inside the recording studio and i've uh uh, i've I've had the experience of of having something uh you know come out and and so uh, i'm naturally curious about how it was for for other musicians and and how these amazing songs that uh that that i grew up loving actually uh started from their inception and and so the rod stewart album is is kind of one of continuing fascination for me because it it is just such a like a, a great collection of songs um and his delivery uh his vocal delivery is just impeccable like he he nails the sentiment. I mean, we've spoken about Rod uh, have. previously. I think we had an entire uh, episode dedicated to him. Um, well, I, I don't think I'm, I'm we did, sure. Did. I, yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. I recollect that. And uh, and, and in 1971, so, you presumably had every picture tells a story uh, when we had that year. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's always or it was it was certainly was one of his strengths back in his. Uh, uh, Mercury Years, which is uh, uh, kind of his uh, recording history or solo recording history up until uh, about 75 when he uh, left Britain for the States and kind of went commercial and jet-sitting and lounge lizard and yes. all of the kind of inhabited his modern, more modern persona, which uh, has kind of stuck with him. Uh, to this day but before then he was kind of like a folk like a hard rocking folky in a way mm. and uh and that is pretty much true to what he was because he came out of uh, a very bohemian music culture in uh in britain uh the the 60s were just such an amazing ferment um in and around london and obviously uh, regional centres like Liverpool, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but Rod was, and, and Rod had like a, a two degrees, one degree of separation with the Beatles uh, by way of uh, Long John Baldry, mm-hmm. who was a who, who was a blues singer in uh, in the the. Um, Is it Blues uh, Incorporated? Uh, that's Alexis Corner's uh, mob. I think he did serve a stint oh, there, but he had his he had his own band, Steam Packet, and yeah. and he uh, he he literally bumped into Rod Busking and invited him to join. Uh, and he, uh, so I was talking about uh, Rod having a um like a uh a one or two degree separation. Uh, so Long John Baldry had kind of been discovered uh in the cavern 
uh, he uh, he struck up a, an acquaintance with Paul McCartney, and that's kind of how he got his leg up in the industry. Uh, so that was obviously pre-recording uh, contract days for the Beatles as well. Mm. Um, now, Steam Packet had a bunch of great musicians uh, go through them. One Reginald Dwight keyboard player who soon after changed his name to Elton John. And the John from his uh, you know, new name, Elton John, Long John uh, came, came from Long John Baldry. Exactly. Yeah. So, I so said there was despite, this collection. Despite the film, uh, I don't know whether you've seen Rocket Man, the film Rocket uh, Man. Have you ever seen? Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. have. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, there was this scene, obviously fictitious scene, where he's with Dick James or whoever it is, and they're talking about um, they're talking about the the name he's going to have, and he, he he had the name Elton, which is I think Elton was from was Elton One of the from other, the same band. He was from Steam Packet as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and John, he just looked around his office and he saw a picture of the Beatles on the, on the, on the wall and he just said, Elton John. I thought, oh, I was, I was it, moaning all the way through the movie about that. It's absolutely my disgraceful. Yeah, it was yeah, no, terrible. It's ridiculous. Poetic license, I guess like, it's called. Uh, like just for like expediency or because they think it'll be a punchier story, but oh, God, if you've got a vehicle like that, why not use it to educate people on what happened? You know, give them a bit of honest history. Like yeah, that's why that's- they're sitting in the cinema seat watching that film in the first place. It's it's maddening exactly. when you see something like that. I mean, I so didn't anyway. mind the film overall as it's just an entertaining thing. Um, but that's that's another story. That's, We're that's, not going down the yeah. Elton route. And 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 the the Queen film was the same, arguably worse. So yeah, like I, the Queen yeah. film. Yeah, I, I moaned about the Bohemian Rhapsody film uh, when when it came out, and uh, I'm a nightmare when it comes to these films because the the, chrono- the chronology of some of the songs that they did just didn't fit in, uh, which is odd. the the only The only difference between that seemed more of a biographical thing. Um, than than the Elton film, which seemed more like old school musical, really, where the songs just, I don't know, you'd just be getting on, going into the toilet or something, and then suddenly you'd randomly sing a song like Rocket Man or whatever it might be. Um, um, where, whereas Bohemian Rhapsody at least sort of followed, even though out of order, a sort of biography yeah. of them. Look, I, I don't know. Both films came out roughly the same time, and they were okay. Yeah, I'm not that 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 kind of music semi musical uh, treatment, uh, like musical production treatment of of uh, the Elton film, I, like I, I I didn't mind in and of itself. It w- just would have been nice if they'd kind of stuck to uh, uh, stuck to historical facts. I mean, we know that when he breaks into a song, that that's not how it happened. It's it's obvious, but when but when you get those little fabrications, like where did his name come from, and you see yeah. that, and you go, "Oh, I, I'm really? not going to, yeah. I'm not going to learn anything from this film. It's just going to be like pure smush entertainment, and and that's kind of disappointing. It's empty. It's it's and also apparently when he he apparently told the band, and we're talking about Freddie Mercury now, rather than um, rather than Elton John, but Freddie Mercury telling the band that he he 
had he had HIV or he had AIDS um, just before they went on the Live Aid uh, gig. When in in fact it was well after that when he told them, yeah. you know, it's just little things like that, which is just put put in for the story. Who else exactly. was in this steam packet then? I'm thinking of yeah. people like what Julie Driscoll was she in it? Brian Auger, do you know that's, them? Yeah, yeah, that's I, I think both of those names. I mean, I haven't uh, haven't looked at it too deeply. Or, no, like, I did a little bit of research, but uh, I, like I wasn't going to focus excessively on that, except to say that uh, they they did have a network of musicians as a result, um, and. And Rod's association with Long John Baldry uh, was still current at the time that uh, that he was starting to uh, produce or, or record every picture tells a story, and he did produce it. Uh, that's that's one of the things that uh, that uh, this album shares with Band on the Run is that the the principal artist was actually the producer, uh, which is uh, no mean thing if you're uh, if you're if you're actually the talent. And the director of proceedings, it's uh, it's quite a challenge. It's quite a burden. Um, so uh, very very impressive that Rod knew exactly what he was after, uh, and was able to marshal the other uh, other musicians uh, to uh, uh, create what he wanted. And it would have been um, uh, like financially rewarding for him too. Producers get a um, get their own mm. cut of uh, of an album's royalties sometimes greater than the artists uh, or the individual musicians in, involved, I should clarify. Um, yeah, so Rod had actually produced one side of, of uh, Long John Baldry's album, I think from the previous year or earlier uh, that year. And there was this kind of uh, collection of, of, of musicians who had performed on the, the Baldry album that that Rod then uh, uh, approached to 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 work on his album. So the the first sessions happened in January 1971, and uh, I'm thinking that uh, the Faces Long Player uh, must have uh, been recorded by that point and was just ready for release. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Faces, which was Rod's band commitment um had an album at the start of 71 and an album at the the close of 71 uh and every picture kind of came smack bang in the middle in fact the recording sessions were interrupted by a faces tour of the u.s uh so he he managed to get down a couple of songs he got down um the the last song on side one which uh is tomorrow is a long time um and uh, that's got some uh, violin fiddle, depending on uh, what you want to call it, by uh, by Dick Powell, who uh, I believe appeared on the the, the Baldry record as well. Um, I was just looking at the Baldry record. That came out in '71 as well. Was it? Presumably, it's, it ain't easy. The album, it ain't easy. That that's right. And it was like it, it was a relatively strong hit for. Uh, for for uh, John Baldry, um, I, I don't think it uh, it was earth shattering, but in terms of his career, it was it was a highlight. Probably uh, probably his uh, his uh, best received album uh, of uh, his you know 
early to mid career. Uh, I'm just sorry, I'm interrupting now. I'm just saying yeah, that when, when I said Blues Incorporated, I think what I meant to say was Bluesology. Yes, yes, that's uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah that, because that would reason. be yeah, where Long John Baldry and Elton Dean was the other guy. Ah, there you go. Yep. So that's Elton the Dean Elton. On piano. That's the Elton, um, that Elton John got his name from. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. I noticed that was produced, as you said, that was produced by Rod Stewart. Actually, there was a co-producer. So and he, he name... produced one side and, yeah. Sorry, go and on. Elton. Elton. Elton yeah. is the other producer, it says here anyway. Yeah. So Rod Stewart and Elton John. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. But they are the, the, the cast of um, The Usual Suspects. With Ron Wood and the the vocalists as well. Well, Kenny yeah. Jones, I assume, is on there too. But well, you, you mentioned about producing it and um, and and performing the album as well. Obviously, uh, ten tracks. Interestingly, six of the ten tracks are actually covers. I think uh, I'm right. In saying let me this. think about that. Uh, six. Probably okay. So, well, okay, two of the tracks, got... two, well, two of the tracks are, are just instrumentals. So, there's the uh, the little madrigal okay. that that uh, classical guitarist Martin Quittenton um, composed. Uh, Henry, I read that oh, yeah, Henry. Okay, so that that's that's, cool. that's 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 what opens Maggie May. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, right. And, and uh, in some uh, presentations, it was included. So I think I some singles, May, yeah. I mean, yeah, some singles must have been impressed with it uh, to to start the song with, and others it wasn't. Um, supposedly, he composed that on the train, which is pretty impressive. He must have had his guitar with him. I mean, it's not a long piece; it's only like thirty seconds or something. But um, yeah, but still, trying to get <laughs> trying trying to get the uh, the 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 like the the physical space and the peace and quiet to come up with something. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think you would, uh, you, you'd have to pick your moment. Uh, the other yes. one is, uh, is, uh, Amazing Grace, which is just him and 20 year old Sam Mitchell on slide guitar. And so Sam Mitchell had been on the Baldry album and, uh, I don't know if he appears elsewhere because, uh, uh, Ronnie Wood had started playing slide guitar as well, so I think it's Ronnie Wood, for instance, playing the slide guitar at, uh, on "That's All Right, Mama." Um, right. So yeah, I'm not sure where else Sam Mitchell appeared. I haven't uh, haven't done no, my homework there, but that, yeah, that, that, there's definitely it's definitely Sam Mitchell on the um uh, on the the Amazing Grace performance. So like that is that is obviously cover. Henry's obviously an original, although not Rod Stewart's. Yeah. Um, the uh, the three, so yeah, Dylan, and, and Rod wanted this album to be kind of like a Dylan esque uh, late night record. It, he wanted it to be kind of mellow and ballady, and it ended up kind of having probably a lot more uh, rockers than the uh, <clears throat> the the original concept uh, had uh, had intended for. Um, probably is the influence of uh, touring with the Faces because it was off the back of. Uh, that touring experience that uh, he brought in every picture tells a story to the studio. Um, uh, Maggie May, uh, uh, it's fair to say, is a bit of a rocker. Um, with with, a, with some mandolin in there, which sort of makes makes it a little bit yeah. folky. Like we're 
you were saying yeah before. and and that that was that was almost an afterthought it wasn't in the uh it, the, the original concept of the song at all uh they were trying to rescue it because they didn't think it was very good um and uh like i'll i'll, I'll tell that story a little bit later um uh, just to go back to the uh to the chronology of, of the the sessions so um mm. uh he, he'd laid down um tomorrow is a long time which is the dylan song and um seems like a long time which i mean if you had to say there's a weak track on this record or you know like what's the weakest track that's that's probably it but it's still a pretty great song um and uh the author the composer is ted anderson and you go who's ted anderson good question so so Ted Anderson is a buddy of the duo Brewer and Shipley. Now Brewer and I Shipley Brewer had and Shipley, yeah. okay, so they had a they had a one focus took over group. the line. One took over that's, the line. That's the one. And yeah. and seems like a long time was a Ted Anderson song uh that they that they recorded for the album that One Took uh was on was as on. well. And so they uh they they knew they knew Anderson from the folky circuit in LA in the late sixties. Um, so that was, that was basically Ted Anderson's uh, big, big claim to fame that, uh, that uh, uh, Brewer and Shipley's uh, cover of it uh, exposed it to Rod Stewart, who then put it you know, on a, put a version on of it on, on a million selling album. And, you know, that, mm. that would have been, that would have been great royalty wise for him. So uh, yeah, that was, um, uh, that, that was a, uh, like a, um, of course, the album, um, the album closer, is the Tim Harden song. Yeah, find a yeah, reason. So, to so all of these, I love that one. Yeah, all, all of these covers were basically Rod's uh, folky affectations. Uh, his, mm. uh, that's that's where his sympathies strongly lay. Even though uh, he was, you know, uh, far more of a rocker. Than, than any of these guys, uh, even though he was considered to be a, a, a kind of a, a pop figure by his um, bandmates in the faces. Mm. Um, he, uh, he had the, uh, the, the nose for, uh, for, for what, was, uh, what was commercial and what was going to sell, and that kind of marked him out as pop. <laughs> It's a it's a strange distinction now. I I don't think we uh we we think in those terms and haven't ha- haven't done probably since you know sh- shortly after mm. that uh, that that era anyway. Um, it, like that there, there were um, a, a lot of um a, a lot of values that uh, uh and distinctions that that kind of changed radically in in a very short space of time. And I guess there, anyway, there were a few he, artists back then. I don't know whether there's so many nowadays where they, they had a concurrent solo career as well as a band career there weren't many of those i wouldn't have thought not now anyway i think brian ferry did it didn't he yeah Obviously, it's, it, it, it's slightly different more. with with i mean yeah it, brian ferry did do it actually um i mean his his albums were yeah pretty much concurrent with roxy and then roxy had Kind of the the breakout pop hit uh, with "Love Is the Drug," and then went on hiatus. Like that would have been the time when Roxy Music should have uh, uh, should have been really uh, striking out. But um, it, 
almost became it, it almost became Ferry's excuse to well pretty much became Ferry's excuse to to strike out uh without the band and and, and concentrate on a solo career so mm. they uh they they sat on the sidelines for for three years until uh he put out the bride stripped bear in 78 which uh as far as i can tell bombed and then mm. roxy music was kind of resurrected yeah <laughs> so very very, very strange yeah strange association there but um yeah rod took off and never looked back and and the faces were, uh, were were toast as a result yeah true uh well reason to believe of course i think we've discussed this before but it was intended to be the a side of the single it was the a side and, and maggie uh, may on yeah. the on the b side yeah but it yeah, spun so, around because of airplay yeah so uh, rod and ronnie ronnie wood uh his uh uh, companion in the faces uh, had uh, had co-written every picture tells the story. Uh, great great track, and I think they knew it. Um, and Maggie May, which uh, was not highly regarded. Um, no, I was reading reading that. So, uh, classic, I think. Classic yeah. song, Maggie there, May. There was yeah. There there was a uh, there was another song which which is a a wonderful song which is mandolin wind and that was all rod uh mm. and and rod had um uh written it on the guitar he's uh he's ad- admittedly not much a- of a player they just kind of described him as a strummer but um he has that little kind of uh lick that he does that you can hear in for instance uh man of constant sorrow from his uh, first solo album like that's that's him playing acoustic guitar as well. Um, so the uh, the instrumentation on Mandolin Wind actually has him and Ronnie and Martin Quinton on nylon string all playing uh, something different. And uh, obviously they needed a mandolin player uh, to to join them. <laughs> Considering the, the, the title of the song, so yeah, uh, Ray Ray Jackson, Jackson. yeah, from Linda Swan, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, was, was invited to come and play on that. Yeah, he acquitted himself, and then they said, uh, "Actually, we've got this uh, this other thing that we don't know what to do with. Uh, what do you reckon uh, you, you could do with that? Could you maybe come up with a a, a little bridge piece that uh, that we can stick in the middle of the song?" And so he had a listen and composed something, and. Uh, of course, that's the uh, the, the breakdown uh, that that leads into the uh, the outro of Maggie May. Gotcha. And there's conflicting accounts, but uh, I, I think probably the uh, the most believable one is that um, uh, he got outsized ideas of his contribution to the uh, to the song and wanted a a co-write uh, on it. And and Rod Stewart's way of uh, putting him in his place was to affect uh, 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 to forget his name on the uh, on the album credits. So the name <laughs> slips my mind. Yeah, screw you! Like you, you try try asking for royalties again. So and okay. like he he ended up taking them to court and losing, I believe. Uh, I, I don't think the uh, that the credits were uh, were ever amended in his favour. I'm always confused about these co-credits and co-write. I mean, for example, 
Rod and Martin Quinton wrote uh, Maggie May and and you were it well, I think, on the next album, which was what Never a Dull Moment, I think it was. Yeah. Presumably, Rod Stewart was more the lyricist, or was it a bit of both? Or and Quinton That's a good did question. The music? I, yeah, I. I don't think uh, Quinton's known as a lyricist. It, uh, it's it's never been mentioned. So I think it's safe to assume that uh, he contributed music only. But we also mm. know that Rod is a guitarist and, and mm. quite capable of coming up with chord progressions on his own uh, and musical pieces. Um, so it's probably, uh, in, in Rod's case, a bit of everything. And in... You know, Quintington and Wood's case, uh, uh, it would be the music only, and they just didn't bother making those distinctions in the uh, in the credits. Because nowadays, I mean, every, everyone seems to want a credit on a song, and I, I don't know if you just and they just get them, don't they? You just get credits. Sometimes modern songs, which I know you're not a fan of, you look at it and there's like sixteen writers of the song. Uh, and I think, what yeah. what's going on there? This is like yeah. someone was in the studio when they were recording it, making a cup of tea or something. And they thought, yeah, well, I, need, I deserve a credit for that. And rather than have the fear of being sued, they just add them on. Yeah, it's, it's either good. it's either uh, songwriting by committee, uh, like mm. where everyone's basically in the room and goes, oh, I don't like that part. Oh, you should change that part. Oh, why don't you make it this chord or whatever? And, and then it just becomes this, you know, huge melting pot. Or... Uh, the, the the song goes through a, a bunch of revisions. Like someone comes up with it and decides it's not very good and needs help, and then it passes to the next person who you know tries something else with it, and then mm. you know so it goes goes through a a pass the parcel. Uh, and, and look, in, in all fairness, that's that's how uh, songs are written, um, and also sometimes uh, song credits uh, are, are there just for vanity. Um, mm. Yoko Ono, Paul McCartney was fond of pointing out that Yoko Ono collected uh, um, uh, royalties for the long and winding road, and John was uh, not involved in the slightest with with that song, the creation of that song, uh, not in the mm. writing and not in the recording of it. Um, and conversely, um, uh, he, he's also admitted that uh, the extent. Well, actually, he. Uh, I think it it was um, either uh, like uh, being interrogated in the press or even in a court case that um, he had to defend uh, Linda getting uh, songwriting credits. And he was uh, basically defending her by saying, well, uh, you know, I, I use her as my sounding board. If she says, I don't like that part, I like that part better then that's a collaboration. And that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's a, a co-write. So who's you know who's to say that it isn't? Since we're on the subject of the Beatles, and I will be in a second anyway after we've uh, finished with Rod. Uh, for example, George Harrison. I'm sure. What sort of input did he have in the songs of, that are actually recorded and composed by Lennon and McCartney? I mean, I'm just thinking of maybe guitar solos or riff. I mean, I can think of one song off the top of my head, um, and I love her. Right. George Harrison wrote that the hook of the song that, that it starts with it ding 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 that was George Harrison he doesn't get a, he doesn't get a, a composing credit for it 
And, and he probably should have in that case where it's a, mm. an integral part of the song. So there is this argument that uh, uh, musical contributions uh, 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 can be, if they're, if they're replaceable, if they could have been uh, replaced, if they're, if they're somehow arbitrary and not essential to, to, to the nature of the song, then... Um, uh, you could leave yeah, that name then, off. Then, the then, then that participant doesn't doesn't get a uh, doesn't get a writing credit. No, so it's. I mean, <laughs> it is kind of a uh, uh, a little bit of a, a tyranny, if you like. But um, it's it's one of those things that's very very rubbery and and really comes down to uh, working relationships. Mm. So definitely, I think Harrison got the uh, the rough end of the stick um, in um, uh, in a lot of his uh, interaction in the Beatles. Um, I, I don't think that that's any any secret even, at this stage. Even Ringo, maybe with some of his little uh, Ringoisms, as they called them, came up with some of the titles of songs. I mean, is that I mean, a hard day's night? You know, when they were filming. I hadn't got oh, the title. Oh, yeah, look. And he'd come out and he'd say something like, oh, that was a, it was a hard day. And he came outside and, of course, it was it was now nighttime. So it was a hard day's night or whatever. Uh, yeah. And eight days a week. I mean, the things like that. I'm trying to think of other ones, but, yeah. Look, that's, I mean, uh, the, the fact that they used it uh, at all, as uh, used his sayings at all as a source of inspiration uh, is, is probably an act of kindness to him. They could have, uh, I mean, like Paul McCartney could write a song falling off a log and, and get his inspiration from anywhere. And like, where do you draw the line uh, in, in terms of, of the act of creation? Like nothing, nothing exists in a vacuum. At some point you have to say I, uh, I yeah. without, you know, Without this person, this song wouldn't have existed. Yeah, or, without or, that guy or, that chopped that tree down to force to make that log uh, that he fell off. Yeah, I deserve a co-credit for that. Yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't happen. Yeah. So all yeah, right, it's, um, yeah, it's a little bit, yeah, a little bit loose there. So is is there anything more on Rod you want to talk about? You said you were maybe yeah. coming back to something, was it? Yeah, there was. Um, yeah, just uh, uh, maybe to. Uh, talk about um, some of the, uh, the the musicians involved. So, um, uh, like there, there were the uh, the two uh, uh, vocal abrasives, uh, female vocal abrasives, uh, Maggie Bell and Madeline Maggie Bell. Bell. Very, but like very very different uh, individuals. Um, uh, like one of them's black and the other's uh, white. Uh, mm-hmm. But they they actually both had quite husky vo- singing voices, um, and uh, and so one of them sings on every picture. Uh, it comes in kind of halfway Maggie. through. Yep. Yep. And um, so I think Maggie is the black singer, and Madeline's the white singer. Madeline and Long John Baldry are, are, are singing uh, backing vocals on uh, "Seems Like a Long Time." And uh, aside from, um, uh, I, I know I'm losing you. The Temptations cover uh, featuring the faces, um, 
who weren't mentioned for contractual reasons because they're on Warner Brothers and uh, Rod's solo efforts were on Mercury. Um, there was uh, Pete Sears, who uh, uh, who was an in-demand uh, session piano player, uh, who uh, who also played on on the, uh, the Long John Baldry project, but uh, had to be enticed over from LA where he had session commitments or something. So he was he was pretty in demand. Pete Sears, also the name of my old maths teacher at grammar school oh, in the seventies. Strangely, um, so obviously Pete had him as a, I think his son. Was it his son? I think his son was in his year as well, actually. Yeah. Pete Sears, yeah. Uh, Madeline Bell was the black girl. Oh, uh, there you go. Ma- yeah, Mad, because I think she was I in. Got the mixed up. I was going to say one of them was in Blue Mink. Do you remember about yeah. Blue Mink? Yeah, it was Madeline Bell. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, like there's uh, like a, a bass note at the start of um, seems like a long time. That kind of. Uh, you get the drum roll and then the like the 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 hit on the the, the one of the bar and the bass is like I don't know a split second late. That's uh, that's Ronnie, um, and a lot of the recording was was just uh, let's get it done, like not labor over it. Um, every picture tells the story was laid down in two hours uh, with basically no redos, like just straight ahead. One time through, do it. Um, although there are a couple of alternate takes uh, that you can find on the internet of, of some of the songs. Um, and interestingly, I think I think it's worth uh, 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 worth looking up on Spotify if you like. There is an alternate version of Maggie May, which um, sounds like a an early. Uh, demo version. I'm not even sure if it was recorded at Morgan Sound um, a- a- as a as an early attempt or not, um, or, or whether it was uh, was done elsewhere. But uh, the song is in quite a different shape from the one that we're familiar with. So that's uh, that's worth checking out. Oh, I vaguely remember hearing that once before. Actually, if it's on Spotify, yeah. I'll probably have. I noticed. So, um, yeah. Uncredited, Ronnie Lane was on. Uh, I know I'm losing uh, you. Who knows? Yeah. So yeah. So that's that's the faces, and they're uncredited for contractual reasons because of the two record ah. labels. So yeah. Uh, uh, Kenny Jones, same boat. Ian Kenny McLagan, Jones, yeah, uncredited, but but, yeah. but Ronnie Wood is credited though. Yes, I, I don't know how that works because yeah, yeah. Uh, because. Uh, yeah, that that they must have had some allowance or or permission from the um from Warner's uh, for, uh, for for Ronnie's involvement. Um, that 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 must have been the case because uh, it, it would have made uh, his participation in the record impossible. Like he's all over it. He's he's on uh, just about every track, except for the uh, the two um, uh, uh, like. Uh, like minor instrumental pieces, or like, Henry, like, yeah, Henry and Amazing Grace, but not that, yeah, that's yeah. But it's uh, it's just a rod and a, a slide guitar, and that's it. Okay, right. Shall we move on? Let's hear about uh, please, 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 me. please me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether you're overly familiar with the whether the 
um, Australian releases followed the UK releases or more American? They did. They did. Well, that's a good, that's a plus. Um, The the version of Rubber Soul that I grew up with is the the 14 track version that opens with Can't Buy Me Love and closes with um, uh, Run For Your Life. You don't yeah. mean can't buy me love, do you? You mean I know um, can't be. I know not can't be. Uh, drive my car. Drive my car. <laughs> drive my car. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking <laughs> of Hey Jude. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, McCartney getting in everywhere there uh, with can't buy me love. Well, yeah, it was. I still think for me, it's one of the greatest debut albums. But I know I'm a bit biased. One of the greatest debut albums ever. Um, it, it was just so, I mean, I wasn't around at the time Well, I was around. I was only about three or four. I don't remember the album. I, at the time when it was released, uh, in when was it released? March 63. Um, but I did have a couple of EPs, you know, when they had EP extended plays, which, which sort of comprised three or four track, four tracks. On both had a twist and shout EP, I remember. And I've I had, got that EP. Or yeah, I've got an EP. Off, you know, the yeah. four of them jumping that classic pose. I've got that one on vinyl somewhere. And the Beatles number one EP, which I think came out after, ironically, the twist and shout, uh, which had um, another four songs from the debut album. Uh, it was all, they already had four songs in the can, as it were, with the two singles. Love Me Do, which was released here in October 62. Minor hit 17 in the UK chart. B-side, P.S. I Love You. Yeah, it was, and, uh, it was, seven, it was 17 primarily off the back of Brian Epstein buying up hundreds of copies. Yeah, most of them. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, yes, because someone went into his NEMS store asking for the Beatles originally. Didn't they? That's how he got, got to know them with the, the Tony Sheridan angle over in Germany. Uh, some of the first songs that they ever recorded. So they had that. They had Please Please Me as well, their second single, which all, apart from in the BBC chart, whatever it was called, the B British market, I don't know, whatever name of the chart is, BMRC or something, the chart anyway that the BBC used, where it didn't make number one, it it was number one everywhere else. Uh, so didn't know but technically it's not their first number one. Please please me. And the B side was Ask Me Why. Both of those four tracks were Lennon McCartney originals. They refused to to their credit. George Martin had loved me do. He wanted a, a Mitch Murray song, songwriter come a session songwriter come in. Got a great song here for you. How do you do it? Yeah. Which great was song. number one. Yeah, which was a number one for Jerry and the Pacemakers, but the Beatles they did. To be fair, you can get it on the anthology album, their version of it. They did their best, but that, you can tell the heart's not quite in it. It's not their own yeah. song. We want to so, write our own songs, and so every single was the same. Yeah. So, so does that make um, "She Loves You" the first one that was number one everywhere, mm-hmm. basically? Well, everywhere. No, I don't think so. Because, no. because I know that I know that uh, she loves you like. Broke a uh, broke a sales record, like it sold like one hundred thirty thousand copies or something, and that was the most like any any it, single it, it ever. Certainly done. broke records, and I think that was well, that was the fourth single. She loves you. That was right. what the yeah yeah yeahs and the screaming and the oohs that started the yeah. Beatlemania craze. Um, but the third single was actually number one, seven weeks at number one. I think it was, which was from me to you. 
Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was their third single, and that was number one. Then she and then they all got to number one after that. But of course, by yeah. the time they, it was in February, 11th of February, in fact, 1963, they had the four songs. George Martin actually wanted to record them live at the cavern. Um, because obviously they, they toured extensively in Liverpool, in Hamburg or wherever. And he thought the electricity of their live sound, he wanted to capture that. And he wanted to record them live. But, of course, it turned out it was uh, unsuitable, shall we say. So the next best thing, get them in the studio on the 11th of February 1963 and just perform them live in the studio. Uh, and that's exactly what they did. They had to they had to get 10 songs together. They did them. An esteemed Beatles uh, historian, Mark Lewinson, has said, um, scarcely have... 585 minutes well scarcely have there been 585 more productive minutes in the history of recorded music they came in in the morning the equipment that they uh, were recording on uh uh, i'm pretty sure at the time they they just had like two tracks so they might have had multiple two-track machines uh they could uh, uh at least three of them so they could have like two two tracks running simultaneously, which they would have had to keep in sync, probably manually by you know like subtly like putting pressure on the the uh, the tape reel flanges to you know speed up and slow down, kind of like steer like I don't know like a, like a bicycle handle if you like um, onto yeah. a third third machine, and so they would that they they could get like a couple of uh, uh, couple of uh, like performance inputs. Uh, like maybe the rhythm section or, or, or the drums or whatever, but everything would have had to have been balanced at the mixing desk before it went onto the tape machine. And once he had it there, that was it. It was committed. But that's how everything was recorded at that time. Like it yeah. was like it, there wasn't any true multi-track. But what they would do is they they'd get the uh, the what they called the rhythm section down, which would be the um, like the the guitars, bass, and drums, mm-hmm. and then and then keep the uh, the uh, you know the the vocals for an overdub. Yeah, 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 and I so mean the can... first stereo uh, recordings, of course, were just simply the music on one side and the vocals coming out of the other ear or speaker, depending on how you're listening to it, which was well, quite incredible. I, I mean, please, please me wasn't even stereo, was it? It was uh, like that. No, it was probably it mono they... when it first. It, it was. I don't, I don't think they went stereo until a hard day's night like the third album, sounds about right sounds about right yeah in 64 um now that did have can't buy me love on it as i'm mean, having just <laughs> um yes yeah, so I, I i think it's incredible when you listen to it it's it is so electric it's something new it must have been i'd just love to have been there to be honest sadly we can't get into abbey road studios these days there were three sessions they did a morning session 10 to 1 well, morning and afternoon, 10 to 1 p.m. Then they came back from 2.30 to 6, and then they came back again, 7.30 until 10.45 in the evening. And, yeah, they got it off pat. They needed 10 songs. They had a few originals. A lot of them were covers. I mean, the, the, the first song, actually, I'll talk about the first song. I'm not going to go through all the songs in order or anything like that. The first song they recorded, I think, is probably one of the one of the greatest songs probably on it um and i'm sure given that it was the first track 
that they recorded on the day, probably they, they had high hopes for it, I think. Um, the song's There's a Place. Uh, and I think it showed right away. John Lennon, what was he, 22, 22 years old? But the sort of introspection, is that the right word, of his lyrics were were there to see straight away. Um, the, the very first line of the song, um, there's a place where I can go when I feel low, when I feel blue, and it's my mind. I mean, you, you didn't get uh, that sort of lyric um, from anyone, really, in sort of contemporary pop music back then in 1963. Uh, the depth of his lyrics. Um, originally, the song was, is inspired by the West Side Story, Leonard Bernstein song, uh, Somewhere in West Side Story, which, of course, there's a place for us, rather than being a place for, you know, going behind the whatever it is, in West Side Story, behind the sheds for a kiss and a cuddle, it was more like the mind, his mind that he was talking yeah. about. Um, and and the Beatles maybe you know uh, might be mistaken for provincial hicks. Uh, that that's often the terms that uh, that they're spoken of in, uh, in like in coming from Liverpool. But uh, when they were over in Hamburg uh, with uh, Astrid Kirscher and and uh, the, the German that uh, yeah that the, the German crew that uh, that mm. they've attracted there uh, these uh, young people were very hip to the times like they knew uh, pretty much uh, everything that was going on well not everything but like all, all the major kind of like cultural ferment that was that was going on in America and even in uh, France in, in Paris, um, uh, so like fashion, the, uh, the 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 beat poets, uh, that like the the Beatles were reading, you know, Jack Kerouac's on the road uh, as a result of of their horizons being expanded, uh, mm. you know, by their by their German friends. So they they had like all, all of these. Uh, uh, what what we regard as mind expanding inputs that uh, <laughs> that 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 were happening. Um, I mean, other mind expanding inputs uh, came came later. But uh, came but in terms of in terms of in terms of intellectual ideas, uh, they are uh, like they they were getting hit with the fire hose um, mm. as a result of their, uh, their their German excursions. So. Uh, that was a uh, that was a really you know positive and, and profound influence on them that uh, that there um you know that there there are other you know Liverpool um, you know um, uh, competitors uh, couldn't have dreamed of really no not at all not at all I mean their their, their songwriting was it was so, so unusual. The band were were unique at the time. I mean, they, they, they were four guys. They could all, I mean, arguably, of course, in some cases, but they could all play their instruments. They could write songs. There was no front man, which, which was unusual again. You know, it's like Cliff Richard and the Shadows or, I don't know, Brian Poole and the Tremolos or Gene Vincent, even the Blue Caps way back, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. I mean, there, there, were, there, were, there was a, it was a band. 
uh, and they could write songs. Uh, and the, the, the opening song, which was the second song that they recorded on the day, which was a McCartney song, was originally called 17. And it ended up opening the album with, with that counting at the start, one, two, three, four. And uh, appropriately, I think he also, you can also hear McCartney counting in at the start of the Revolver album, which set up a new, another new trend of music, uh, I think, with the one, two, three, four, at the beginning of Taxman. Um, but talking about songwriting credits, of course, that was a McCartney song, hands down. But John Lennon did contribute one line of the song. It was the second line of the song. This, this is, you know, the story. He wrote the song, yeah. yeah. Well, she was just seventeen, and he would, and she was, she was, you know, never been a beauty queen. Or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, it was terrible. It was terrible, no. and Lennon rescued it. Rescued it with it. You know what I mean? Which yeah. I suppose is a little bit risque uh, back then, but you know, um, that was, yeah, and. Um, so many songs. They did a few covers on the album as well. Arthur Alexander, they dipped into because they, they were listening to all these old records. Uh, they did uh, Anna Go to Him, which is an Arthur Alexander song, which I don't even know much about Arthur Alexander, but um, he's the only artist actually that has been covered by the Beatles, the Stones, and Bob Dylan. There's hmm. a tidbit for you. Uh, so you didn't do better. A few, there was a Goffin King song. Um, um, chains, um, which George sang on, which is a song by an all uh, originally released by a band called the Cookies, uh, and they were an all girl black group originally called the Raylettes, and they backed Ray Charles. But like many of the songs on the album, John's harmonica was quite prevalent on it. Um, they did a couple of Shirelle songs, talking of all girl groups. Boys, which gave Ringo his first vocal, uh, uh, what's the word, um, contribution, uh, if you like, lead yeah, vocal contribution. Yeah. At no point did they think of changing the lyric to girls because it was a girl group that sang a song about, being, about boys. But, yeah, of course, Pete Best sang it originally live. They ousted him. Ringo came on and he did it. That was... Another one of that. There's another one later on at the end of the day as well, which we'll come on to fairly soon. So we get through it quickly. Um, a one take, one take special boys by the Beatles. Then you had the four songs that are already released. Ask me why. Please, please me. Love me do. And Pierce, I love you. Love me do. Interesting in that. Again, it's, it's historically noted that Ringo was not approved by George Martin on the song Love Me Do. That's so there right. are a couple of versions floating around. The single version had Ringo on it, but the I think by mistake that was issued uh, because the album version, which had Andy Andy White, session drummer right. on, and Ringo on a tambourine. So if you hear a tambourine on a Love Me Do version, you know it's Andy White on drums and Ringo on tambourine. So, uh, so the other version doesn't have any tambourine at all? Presumably, no, I don't think it does. It can't do. No. Wow. It does I, sound I've different got, to the single version. I've, 
I've got a single version of Love Me Do. It might have been a reissue. I, I'm not sure, but now I'm going to have to... On the Past Masters. Past it. Masters album? No, I, I've, I've got... No, I've got a 45, so I'm going to have to dig it Ooh. up and have a, have a good listen to it. Have a listen, see, there's no, yeah. And on Pierce, I Love You, Ringo was dumped on, he decided, George Martin decided, no, we don't need drums on this. So Andy White was on Bongos, Ringo was on Maracas. And that was the B-side of Love Me Do, which you'd also have um, one of Macca's songs. Uh, the other Shirelle song was Baby It's You. Do you want to know a secret, another John song, which was inspired by his mum, Julia, who used to sing the song from Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. Uh, I d- Do you want to know a secret? Promise not to tell. We're standing by our wishing well. That's where he got the line from. And it, George sang it, as John Lennon said, in, un- in, the, in a way that only John Lennon could say. Uh, it, the song only had three notes in it. George wasn't the greatest singer, so I just gave it to him. Even George George Harrison said, I didn't like my vocal, but on the other hand, I didn't know I didn't know how to sing. Nobody told me how to. And that was his first out there. And a, there's a place I've mentioned already. I love that song. And there was a, even a, an old stage um, adaptation, an adaptation of a Broadway song of, from the play A Taste of Honey thrown in which um wasn't one of john lennon's favorites uh, there's a guy called lenny welsh did the first recorded version of it which caught i'd say paul mccartney's eye probably more his ear i'd have thought john lennon actually called it a waste of money <laughs> rather than the taste of honey um and it was probably george martin and brian epstein's influence that sort of got it included because lennon used to call mccartney's um because he had a bit of a, um, a fondness for outdated, old-fashioned music, which developed further with Honey Pie and uh, When I'm 64 and Maxwell Silver Hammer, for example. Uh, so he used to call it Paul's Granny Music. Um, so that was a taste of Honey. And finally, the Pièce de Résistance. I may have, I don't know whether I said at the start, but you can tell even on the first song recorded at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's a place if you listen to the album you can hear john lennon's not well he doesn't sound well he sounds he's like full of cold i mean it's not quite there on there's a place but you can't you can sort of tell he doesn't sound quite right but you can tell after 585 minutes um that by the end of the evening they had one more song to do what we're going to do let's dip into the live repertoire let's do the isley brothers uh well it wasn't their song but they, their cover of Twist and Shout, which, of course, John Lennon did. And, you know, he, history has it that he was throwing down the throat lozenges, uh, down his throat zoobs, cough, cough syrup, uh, cough uh, drops, gargling with milk. Um, and he just stripped to the waist, sweating like a pig, whatever the expression is, and just delivered that vocal and uh, again Lewinson Mark Lewinson said arguably the most stunning rock and roll vocal performance of all time can't you hear him yell yeah at the end that's pretty there's a lot of rock and roll vocal performances I'm sure there are that are the greatest of all time but uh, yeah look that was was 
that I mean, you could you could uh, yeah, say so you, you you could you, you could stand on saying uh, it was probably the greatest rock and roll vocal of uh, of '63 because uh, uh, you know, um, it like. I think it stands up there a little bit more it's, than it's, that. It's one. It's one. Of, it's. I mean, it's one of the. It's one of the greatest in history because it was. It was such an epic song, and uh, I mean, they were using "Twist and Shout" uh, for movie soundtracks in the eighties. Yeah. Um, so it uh, it certainly had something, and look, it, it's always uh, it's always great to hear about a one take wonder. Yeah. Well, the contrary reports one say that they did try in a second take, but his voice had gone. Yeah, so yeah, they had just obviously then, yeah. just used the first one, and that one's the one that closed the album. They he finished the next album with the Beatles with Money. That's what I want. Uh, the Berry Gordy uh, song. Um, oh, uh, trying to think of the name that recorded it. Barrett Strong, I think, did the original. Um, in a, in a similar fashion. And please, Mr. Postman, he did an album. But please, please, that's my first album. Their debut album, number one for thirty weeks. Well, of course, weeks. they they were a phenomenon by that point, and uh, uh, "Please Please Me" as an album would, would have been like a a Martian spaceship landing. Um, definitely, definitely, it was only surpassed when the next album with the Beatles came out. That took over for another twenty one weeks. So thirty plus twenty one is virtually a whole year. The Beatles were at number one. Yeah, yeah. You can't imagine uh, Lennon uh, would have had much fondness for it, uh, given his uh, given his condition and uh, you know um, the uh, the uh, limitations it placed on his singing. Uh, I, I know that uh, that I would have had reservations about it. Um, what because he wasn't feeling well and it didn't come yeah, out. Yeah, that's okay, right. Yeah. It would have Fair affected enough. his performances. You've like. Yeah, and I, I can tell you that's not a nice feeling when you've come out. I can and, sure, uh, yeah. I, I, I like that, that's not said, me at my best, you know. I think Lennon said. You want to be at your best. I think Lennon said in the you know in one of his probably in one of his last interview, famous last interview with Andy Peebles in 1980, a few months before he died, um, was probably saying that about a twist and shout. Yeah, he didn't like his vocal on it, but it, it is what it is basically, that's and it. that's yeah. Uh, anyway, enough Beatles. Enough Beatles. Shall we go on? Go on to McCartney. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was thinking about uh, Band on the Run um, and Every Picture Tells oh, a Story. Sorry. One, one, one thing on. I'll say to find, just before you come on to Band on the Run, I was thinking a bit of a link between the two. I've just thought of it. One of the songs that didn't mention in detail was called Misery on Please Please Me. It was the second track. Um, which they wrote for Helen Shapiro, who they were touring with, probably fifth on the bill uh, for the, the 16-year-old Helen Shapiro. Um, they wrote the song first. She didn't record it, but Kenny Lynch did. He became the first artist to record a Beatles song. It didn't chart, but he was the first one to cover a Beatles song. And Kenny Lynch is featured on the cover of Band, Band on the on Run. Band on the Run, yeah. So Sorry the, the, yeah, the, the comparisons between um, uh, my, my two albums, they, they were both uh, the commercial peak for the, uh, for, for the act in question, um, at least uh, Rod's uh, uh, Mercury uh, era of his, uh, his career and, and uh, McCartney uh, uh, for his uh, Wings phase. Um, 
if uh, if not in terms of sales, uh, definitely in terms of critical reception. Um, both produced by the main artist, um, and that's where the similarities perhaps end. Where uh, every picture tells a story um, is presented as a solo artist, but is more like a, an ensemble. Which I mean, they they practically all are. Like there, there has to be a band to to record the uh, the, the the material. Um, Band on the Run was more like Paul McCartney doing a Stevie Wonder and uh, and doing all the instruments himself. Although uh, there's uh, singing and and guitar playing contributions from Denny Lane and uh, and singing keyboard contributions from Linda McCartney. Linda, yeah. Uh, some percussion cameos, including one from Ginger Baker. Uh, Cream, the drummer for Cream. Um, Is that Picasso, Picasso's last words? Was he on that? That's it. Now, when I was researching for this show, like I've just got so many little tidbits in my head uh, of the background of of this album. And some of them I I can't find the sources for anymore. So my impression from somewhere is that uh, one of the incentives for going to to Lagos, to, to Nigeria, was that McCartney knew that uh, Ginger Baker had a studio there, but maybe, yeah, maybe I'm misremembering that. But there was a uh, um, at one point uh, perhaps a consideration that that the Baker would would contribute a lot more drumming on the album, you know, or, or contribute like you know drumming and not just uh, like some shaker percussion, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, McCartney's uh, drummer uh, Denny Sliwell had. Uh, had quit the band, I think, with like the 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 other two members. So Henry McCulloch, the other guitarist, and, and Denny Sywell had both quit. McCulloch, I think, over uh, uh, over money considerations, they are on a a very poor retainer, something like thirty pounds a week or something, and uh, McCulloch just couldn't afford uh, like an, an international trip. Um, mm. He was he was broke, and. Sywell was in a similar boat, but I think um, he, he just uh, he, he was hanging hanging in, and then uh, just at the last minute got spooked off uh, the, the the idea of going to Nigeria, uh, which uh, had just been through a civil war, incidentally. I was going to say, yeah, and oh. uh, and so he uh, he uh, I think uh, announced his. Uh, 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 his uh, departure from the group like hours before the plane was meant to take off. So um, like it was last, last minute and McCartney got to, got to Lagos and got in touch with that, uh, with Baker. And uh, so Arc Studios was about an hour drive out of town and uh, Picasso's last words um, was the song that uh, McCartney brought along with him to the session, which was written Basically on a dare uh, by Dustin Hoffman, um, uh, he'd caught up with uh, Hoffman and Steve McQueen on uh, who were uh, filming Papillon um, in Jamaica, and uh, and Hoffman uh, uh, asked him about the the uh, songwriting process, and, and McCartney basically said, "Look, I can write one at the, you know at the drop of the hat. It just happens. You just 
you just pick a, an inspiration and 10 minutes later you've got something you've got a melody and and you know a, a lyric and and so Hoffman either then or a little time after depending on uh, which account you believe said well look here's this uh, story from the newspaper about um about Picasso's last words and and uh, and McCartney uh <laughs> so- <laughs> pro- pro- proved his proved his claim and just started writing in front of uh, in, in front of Hoffman who was uh yelling for his uh, his wife uh, come and look he's doing it he's doing it whatever so anyway uh that was the song they brought uh with them to ginger baker's arc studio and for whatever reason um uh perhaps because of baker himself or the uh, uh the the uh, uh that the circumstances or you know uh like the, the state of the the, the studio or something um uh uh dampened McCartney's enthusiasm and, and uh it ended up being just uh just shaker that uh, that that um uh Baker contributed um yeah, and then Baker. so Baker Baker had uh had had a uh, had a musical group that uh, that fella Cootie was um was a member of and Cootie was uh uh, very highly regarded, not just in Nigeria but internationally, and and could have got wind of of uh, McCartney's project and accused him of of coming to Nigeria to steal their you know musical heritage for his own profit. And so yeah. uh, McCartney ended up inviting him into the studio and and playing him uh, some of the Picasso's last words. <laughs> Pro- well, the funny thing is that that there are a few few things that uh, that are in band on the run that that do have a little bit of a, a an african influence um that might be one a, of them that sort of the ending and yeah i mean it that's probably a little bit of a stretch there's not much to it but uh there's the um the the uh, hand percussion i think it's bongos on or congas on uh mamunia which mm. which do have a uh, definitely an african flavor whether that's a, an overt lift i don't know but uh, Mrs. Vanderbilt is the uh, the one that I'm thinking of, uh, um, where there's that ho hey ho, which ho, is ho. kind of African. That's kind of African chant, and McCartney mm. had been toying with that. The uh, mm. the Wings Wildlife um, uh, remaster. If you dig into the uh, the extended um, uh, like disc with, with all of the the kind of uh, extra material. There's uh, there's some African chant uh, experimentation that McCartney had been doing a couple of years prior, so it just goes to show that it had been something that uh, uh, that had his had had his attention for at least a couple of years by that point. Hmm. So it's had there, a on, there on yeah, had it's a there chant. on Mrs. Yeah. Vanderbilt and and the lyrics. You know, down in the jungle, living in a tent, you don't use money, yeah, yeah. pay rent, you don't even know the time, but you don't mind. That's a little bit cheeky. I don't, I don't know song. if you. I, I'll song. bet. I'll bet he didn't play that stuff to Fela Kuti. No, he probably didn't. <laughs> he, it's more probably like, I'll play him all of this stuff, but I just won't play him that. Or maybe he didn't have it recorded at that point. There's mm. the other anecdote about uh, how they got robbed at knife point of, of their demo tapes uh, yeah. uh, by being careless and, and walking out on the road one night. Um, how much had they got down in the studio already by that point and how important were the demo tapes? Um, it's hard to say. Like I haven't I haven't read an anecdote that that expands on that enough to know but um 
Uh, yeah, they're, they're probably just valuable as demo tapes, and, and McCartney could have uh, probably reconstructed uh, the, the ideas uh, off the top of his head. Um, he, he, he would have been familiar enough with them. One so, one track I love on the uh, well, I love all the album actually, but one the one track he wrote with Denny Lane, I actually like as well. Um, no words, no right, words. Yeah, and, and yeah, so. Uh, Denny is Denny quite short, singing. But... Yeah, uh, it's a, it's no a great words, song. I think McCartney's singing it, isn't he? Okay, yeah, uh, I think it might be both of them. Um, it could be both, yeah. And, and Denny, so Denny, Denny starts Picasso's last words. That's Denny singing uh, the first lines. Grand old painter died last night. That's that's Denny. Uh, but no words. Um, it's interesting that McCartney. Credits Denny with the uh, uh, with the uh, know, music yeah. because the uh, the chord progression is very McCartney like like I, I like it's kind of got this descending thing that kind of like crashes into a like a, a diminished chord before resolving and it's exactly the sort of thing that McCartney did on songs like You Won't See Me and uh, there's another one from the Help album. Um, but it's like that. There are a couple of examples of McCartney doing that kind of chord progression. Uh, I've just seen a face. No, that's that's not the one I'm thinking of. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of McCartney songs on the help. Yeah, Another it, girl. Yeah, it's but that. Yeah, I. Yeah, it it, it might come. But anyway, yeah. so D- Denny was no mean songwriter. I mean, he he'd written "Go Now" for the Moody Blues and like a bunch of you know other stuff. So he was quite capable. He, he was a co-writer. He, I believe, he wrote um, the uh, the music to Mull of Kintyre, or did he write the lyrics? Anyway, he he contributed to to Mull of Kintyre as well, and stupidly um, sold his um his his rights back to McCartney for that when he was uh, uh in financial trouble, which yeah, insane really. Um, mm. But he he was like he was definitely a capable contributor. So it's really interesting that that. Uh, that particular instance, no words, uh, is so McCartney-like uh, in its uh, uh, in its ideas. So, yeah, um, Still I guess just goes to show that goes, goes to show that well. yeah, yeah, goes to show that uh, he he was a you know a, a, a good foil and and uh, perhaps um, uh, McCartney could even have used uh, used more of it. Um, which is a, uh, a, a an old argument uh, against uh, McCartney that uh, he, he could be domineering. Um, with, uh, well, he, I remember taking us back to the previous album then, uh, 73-72, yeah, uh, the other album in 73, Red Rose Speedway, yeah. when um, yeah, Henry McCulloch did an absolutely superb guitar solo in my love. Which which he had to fight for, like McCartney had a like a, a like a, a pre um, premeditated guitar solo that he wanted Henry to learn, and uh, Henry said, "Can we do it my way?" And McCartney said, "Okay, yeah, yeah, all right." And then. then he 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 busted that out. McCartney went, "Oh yeah, okay, you yours is better." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, fair play. He knows when yeah. he's wrong. Well, as I said, they do a lot of these. He does a lot of these songs live when he's performing live. Hopefully, I'm going to get to see him again. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm thinking Ban on the Run, Jet, uh, Let Me Roll It, 
1985, he um, yeah. still does live. Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the songs are acoustic based, like they're they're built around uh, like an acoustic guitar um, rhythm track, um, mostly with drums. Although, well, let's see, Mamunia, Picasso's Last Words, and Bluebird are just percussion. And in the case of the last two, um, it's uh, electronic percussion, uh, like early early drum machine we're talking about. So it's uh, the I think it's the Ace Tone Rhythm Ace, uh, which um, which track you're talking? You're talking nineteen eighty four? No, no, I'm talking about Bluebird. So there's oh, a right. uh, yeah, there's like a little kind of cowbell kind of pip kind of noise. In, in in bluebird which is almost certainly the rhythm ace and uh again in the uh, in the bridge section of picasso's last words so mccartney was i mean there's there's uh either moog or odyssey synths on uh, on uh 1985 and band on the run and, and perhaps one or two of the other tracks uh so mccartney was definitely experimenting with uh with with electronic instruments um, I just noticed the personnel on Bluebird. It says uh, McCartney, obviously Linda, Danny Lane, Harmony, and acoustic. Remy Kabaka on percussion. Yep. So there's there's percussion and drum machine. All right. Okay. And Howie Casey on tenor saxophone. Yeah. So Howie Remy Casey is, is another another Liverpool band that he was from, so, I think. Yep. Yeah, uh, Remy is a, is the only Nigerian musician that appeared on the uh, on the album because he happened to be in London and uh, away from the uh, perhaps uh, political and cultural uh, influence that could have got them into trouble. Mm. They they recorded this one in London, or they, they or they just so what happened was they, they so they did ten tracks. They did Helen Wheels, which McCartney. Uh, uh, relegated uh, uh, as a, a, single. as a single, and to be off the album. And then Capital in America said, "Actually, can we include this on. on the album?" Yeah. Um, so they did those ten, or at least like uh, basic tracks for those ten uh, in, in Lagos uh, or Ark, uh, in the case of Picasso's Last Words. And then, so they were on they're on eight track, uh, and they they got back to London, transferred. All the tracks to to sixteen track, uh, so that they could uh, they could add overdubs, and that was done at uh, George Martin's Air Studios, and then uh, so they that where they did vocals, who knows uh, where they did, you know, um, uh, yeah, it's difficult to know. Isn't it? the, 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 the yeah the overdubs, so that the saxophone would have been would have been in London. Maybe the vocals were in London. Who knows? They they could have they could have done a, a version, uh, like or, or like a, a take, maybe a like a a scratch vocal in, in mm-hmm. Lagos, and then and then redone it back in London. Whatever uh, bass, again, uh, like taking Sergeant Pepper's as as an example. Bass guitar was actually laid down last. Paul wanted to hear what everything else was. Uh, um, was doing musically before he added uh before he decided what he was going to play on bass um ah. so that that could easily have been the, the the approach he took here um who knows i mean the the bass sound is uh 
humongous. Like mm. you get a you get a decent vinyl pressing, you put it on a, a decent hi-fi system, it goes all the way down. It's uh, <laughs> it's thunderous. Um, he was an he was not that I'm an expert on the subject, but he he seemed to be an, an excellent and melodic bass player, Paul McCartney. Oh, look, his his note choice well, is the just, best. Yeah, just so on point. Um, and I mean, it's it sounds like a Hofner. It's got this kind of like like thuddy, clunky sounds to it. It's not detailed in, in any sense of the word, but um, it's just big and solid, um, and obviously rhythmically fantastic. And and the note choice and the way it supports the music is just uh, uh, like sublimely artful. It's just great, mm. great, and you know he's he's regarded as as one of the best bass players uh, in in rock uh, history, and you know, rightly so. He's, he's, he was one of the guys who wrote the book mm. um, on bass playing, rock bass playing. Um, so there's that jet, obviously. Um, <laughs> since I was corrected from when we last spoke about it. Uh, was recorded in its entirety at, at, at air. And yeah, it's studios, one, yeah. yeah, like it's got, uh, it's got what sounds like baritone sax, um, just like blaring, you know, a, a sustained note. And I can only guess that because of that arrangement, that the the drums just kind of disappear. It's kind of surprising mm. that the that the drums struggle so badly in the mix, given where it was recorded. Um, so that that one's a bit of a mystery, unless that was just artistic license in the you know in the the, the you know uh, mixing session in the mm. mixing sessions. But it's a, it, that's a very very interesting one. So, and, but he yeah, certainly and, and, and the last thing last thing that should be said about it, uh, perhaps, or, or you know, one of the last things is that it was all original material. It was all you know, yeah, it was all theirs. Absolutely. And um, it certainly, he, he sort of found, he, he sort of made it almost as a solo artist oh, post yeah. Beatles with this album. And, and, and he, was, he was looking to do that. They had just, uh, uh, the, the other Beatles had, had just gotten free of Alan Klein and, yep. uh, and that had been a big vindication for McCartney. And uh, He was right all along. That's, that's right. So he, he'd kind of... Uh, Flexed his uh, his talents a little bit at the start of the year with "Live and Let Die" and, and "My Love," and shown that like he was still capable of great music. And so this really was uh, his you know his moment to to prove himself. And uh, and so he he really kind of um, summoned his energies and and uh, and I I think that's. Uh, uh, that's probably the the, the best uh, best summation of, of of why band on the run is what it is. It is mm. that uh, he he had he finally had uh, like something to prove and and the moment to to, to prove it with, um, and and that kind of combination of uh, of factors and and the timing never really occurred for him again in his career. I should say, how could he follow it? That's the problem. I mean, Venus and Mars was a passable follow-up album, to be fair. I think it's an underrated album. I quite like Venus and Mars. 
But uh, in fact, I think I bought that when it came out, unlike Band on the Run, funnily enough. Uh, it's, Venus I, and Mars is my is my clear second favorite of of, of McCartney's, uh, mm. or, or you know McCartney and Wings. Um, like uh, what else have you got? Red Rose, Speedway, Wings, Wildlife, London Town, Back to the Egg, Speed of Sound. Oh my God! Like that sold gazillions uh, mm. off the strength of of two songs, which even, didn't even really sound like band songs. Um, no, they weren't. Silly love songs and let them in. That's right. And then the rest yeah. of the album, ugh. filler, maybe. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm not. Um, I'm not overly keen on that album. The McCartney two album he went on, didn't he? Uh, you said you said back to the egg, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So that back to the egg was the last Wings album proper, and then. All right. Okay. I tell know. you what, it's one of my favourites of his solo album. He came out. It must have been early two thousands. Maybe well, maybe it was two thousand and five, from Chaos. To the backyard or something like that. Chaos and chaos and creation. In chaos the and creation in the backyard. Yeah. yeah, that seemed to be him getting back to what he's really good at. I think um, yeah. the guy who produced Radiohead, whose name escapes me, the name might come to me, um, but yeah, he produced it, and there's some really, really great songs on that album. Look, like I, I've always tried to like, like, take an interest in in what uh, what he's uh, what he's done, um, you know, since the eighties. But like, I never really love it. Like, I kind of like it. Like that was that was the case with yeah. Flowers in the Dirt. And at some point, I just, I mean, like, I, I've heard some of the uh, some of the stuff he's done in the two thousands as well, and some of it kind of sounds all right, but. I wouldn't bother getting a copy for my CD collection or whatever. No, fair I, enough. Well, that, that I, album I mentioned, I, I, Chaos and Creation, is, is a good one. If you're going to try one, uh, that, that'll that be one I would have said to go for. Yeah. Um, but, of course, right. he's had a McCartney 3 now, hasn't he? And, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, well, not for me. Didn't like it at all. <laughs> I, like okay. I, I was, I, 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 I jumped on the hype and jumped right off. Like I just like, straight oh, in. Like, and a number one in the US he's, again. He's back. And uh, and it was like, oh no, 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 no. I, I I draw a line at Take It Away. That was that was a great record. Take it Take off. Nineteen ninety two's Tug of War. Um, mm. uh, that's that 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 was his that was his last blast for me. I thought of another album but, which was good. A Flaming Pie wasn't a bad album actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Flaming Pie. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, have, have, uh, you're nodding as if saying, like, "Yeah, yeah, it's all right." I, look, it's not another, like I, it's it's another one where I've kind of, uh, I've kind of. Yeah, I quite like it, but yeah, it's not. I almost like it's it. Difficult. When someone has done such perfect albums in the past, whether it be solo, whether it be with Wings, whether it be obviously with the Beatles, it's difficult, isn't it, to to really like some of the modern stuff compared to the old stuff. I think so. I sympathise with your view. I, I think a, a, a guy like McCartney, his his creation process is so natural that he doesn't really understand what makes it work for other people, and I think he's long past the point of of understanding what made his his seventies material work. Um, that might be harsh, perhaps, but um, I, I personally think that there's there's some merit to to that, um, and that's I mean. You know, obviously, just my opinion, and that's just how it how how it is for me. Of course, many say 
maybe you agree with the other, maybe you won't. But having someone like John, someone, John Lennon, around, for example, to say, Paul, no, <laughs> not that one. Yeah. And maybe yeah. he just didn't, he hasn't had that in yeah. the last yeah. 50 uh, years. Maybe, yeah, maybe the 70s, he, he was still able to kind of have that sense of John on his shoulder to kind of like, uh, you know, rein in his worst tendencies. And then he just kind of lost that. Who knows? But um, I think uh, enough of uh, enough of Ban on the Run. Enough of McCartney, about- yeah. Yeah. Talk about Let's this talk last about- album. Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick. I'll be quick. Um, I don't know whether you're overly familiar whether Squeeze were a band down down under that were. Look, I, I knew, uh, I, I knew like one song which was cool for cats. Cool think, for cats. Was, yeah, yeah. You get uh, a feel and- for Squeeze with that song because the sort of mix of the the two songwriters, uh, Chris Difford, uh, who does the lyrics, and you've got Glenn Tilbrook who's the who writes the music. Uh, you get a feel for Squeeze with their vocal technique because you've got Tilbrook, sort of um, a choir boy sort of chirp over, and, and Chris Difford is this sort of dry, croaky sort of, almost almost talking sort of style, which you might get from Cool for Cats, I don't know. Hmm. But uh, yeah. he's a great, I think they're a great band, and I think they had their, this is a fourth album, 1981, I think, was their peak. Um, and Chris Difford has himself said that he has, well, he's named the LP as one of the two, <laughs> modestly, one of the two great albums that Squeeze ever made. So it's obviously up there as one of his favourites. Um, it's the lyricism. Um, it's sort of what they call kitchen sink drama style i don't know if that means anything yeah. to you um but what what few... i do know is, is that on. this album uh, is the one album as i understand it that uh, that paul carrick was the uh, the lead vocalist on have i got that right he, well paul carrick it's the fir- it's the fourth album it was the first album that jules holland you're aware of jules holland i assume but yeah so jules holland the, uh, the keyboardist uh, Celebrated keyboard player had left, and Paul Carrick came in. Paul Carrick came in on keyboard in his vocals. Place. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, he, he, I think he only sang on one song, actually. Right. Uh, gotcha. Albeit the one that you probably would recognise. Temp- Tempted is is, Tempted. is the song that I know now. I like Tempted. I I didn't know it growing up, but it's one of those songs that's hung around and has gradually, you know, crept into my kind of uh, uh, like perception uh and uh we we knew paul carrick from uh his hit with ace how long has this been going on it's been going on yeah and also uh don't shed a tear uh, was a late 80s solo hit for him in australia like i've got i've got that on single from when i was a teenager uh it just caught my ear one time on the radio and I, i i got the single i don't a great deal of it now it's got that kind of late 80s mechanicalness to it uh, mm. but it's look yeah it, it, it's a great song that probably deserves a better treatment <laughs> and, and paul carrick's voice is is great he's he, it he's is superb. and of course he went on to sing with uh mike and the mechanics 
Yeah, he's singing uh, in the living years. That's his voice as well, isn't it? Oh yeah, he's, he's one of those guys. He's one of those guys that has just been like he, he, in the charts with like a whole like a like a, a, a lexicon of, of bands. Artists, yeah. Like one of those guys, like um, the guy who sang um, with Kincaid, uh, John. Oh, can't remember his name, but uh, Dreams no. of Ten a Penny and uh, First Class Beach Baby and like yeah, a bunch oh. of sixties. Well, yeah, uh, you mean uh, Tony Burrows? Oh, that's him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony uh, Burrows, yeah. Beach Baby, uh, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, Edison Nighthouse. That's the uh, right, let's yeah, let's go to San Francisco, right. the Flower Pot so Men, and there's yeah. a number of number of yeah, songs. So Paul Paul, um, Paul Carrick is, a, is another Tony Burrows. He's just been <laughs> yes, he is. Um, up. Here I, I am. Here I am again, and now I'm over here. It is odd that they only really use his voice on one song, although it is a big, it was their first US hit, actually. Uh, minor hit, so 44-ish position it made. Um, John John Carter, I'm thinking of. And he, John he wasn't Carter, the, yeah. He wasn't the singer. He was the uh, the, the, the kind Juice of band leader. Manager. Yeah. Ba- ba- band leader for King Kate and, and First Class and a couple of those others. Yeah. And was he not married to Shakespeare? Jill, Jill Shakespeare, was it, I think? Because yeah, I think some of the songs and, and, and I think, Yeah, and I think she was involved in at least one of those projects as well. Um, yeah, yeah he, he he goes back to like uh, uh, like being associated with Jimmy Page during his uh, like uh, like teenage session days, and yeah, he was uh, he was right in the mix there. Well, if was, you haven't heard a Squeeze album, I recommend having a listen to East Side Story anyway because it's um, it was it, it's interesting in that. It was intended originally to be a double album. They were going to have the, the album, the single album that I'm talking about was produced by well, Elvis Costello and Roger Bishiran. I don't know whether you know him, but he'd, he'd recently produced the Undertones album, amongst others, no doubt. But that's where I remember him from because I loved the Undertones when that album came out. Um, but also there were other producers that they were thinking of using. In fact, it was going to be a double album. and They were going to have a different producer for each side, which is unusual. There was uh, Elvis Costello. There was Dave Edmonds. There was Nick Lowe. And believe it or not, tying in again, Paul McCartney. Wow. So there were four. Like- They'd all agreed – but in the end, somehow it didn't ever come about. So it was just a one, one album. And, what a um, what, what a what a cast! Like Nick Lowe, I know. Dave Edmonds. Uh, what a cast! But the the uh, it was just it's just apart from the first, the opening track, which is produced by Dave Edmonds, the the rest was Elvis Costello and Roger Bashiran and Elvis Costello. Chris Difford has admitted was was more of a creative input to it um, rather than the sort of technical aspects of, of production. Um, create creative advisor, I think was the term he probably used. Um, so that was the album was half finished. It was 80 end of 80 beginning of 81. The album was half finished when news of John Lennon getting assassinated came through and Difford has said that they, they just went into the studio a dozen or so musicians dropped in and to quote, they cracked some beers and played John Lennon songs all day. And it was highly emotional. Um, but it's, it's the lyricism, the sort of smart, the humor in his lyrics. 
it's 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 all about domesticate the things girls girlfriends wives affairs um listen you need to listen to it austin i'll tell you um hmm. it is a and this album had a number of different styles maybe while jules holland left i don't know they moved away from the sort of new wavy aspect with i don't know if you call cool for cats and up the junction it's another one of those from that album um new wavy to uh, shift into sort of different styles and this album itself has a bit of rockabilly a bit of r&b some blue-eyed soul mersey beat even a bit of psychedelia some say prog rock in there as well i've haven't really mastered that yet to be honest um new york times were, were keen they praise the album says it's exceptionally satisfying pop record um, but I said, it's the lyrics that get to me. If you like lyrics and the, the amusing lyrics, I think uh, you'll love this this album. Um, I mean, tracks like Inquintessence opens the album. Um, I, I've got stacks of lyrics written down, but I think we probably haven't got time to read too many of them. Um, but Someone Else's Heart. And then, of course, Tempted itself, which, as we've discussed earlier on, Paul Carrick sang rather well as well and that was a that was a song about differs experiences of a of a u.s tour apparently um and an arrangement inspired by the temptations which you might hear um it's uh, it was the second single from the album he said it was um he was in a taxi in america and basically he just started writing down what he saw lyrically I mean, I, I bought a toothbrush, a toothpaste, a flannel for my face, all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, tempted. Tempted by the fruit of another. Tempted, but the truth is discovered. What's been going on now that you've gone? There's no other. Um, Piccadilly, that's a great song as well. I mean, I, 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 there's just so many. I, there's not a duff track on it. Uh Piccadilly, a girl he meets in Piccadilly, I should say, of course. A man behind me talks to his young lady. He's happy that she's expecting his baby. His wife won't be pleased, but she's not been around lately. Um, yeah, the girl was so dreadful. We left in a hurry. We escaped in the rain for an Indian curry at, at the candlelit Taj Mahal. My lips to a napkin, I called for a taxi. The invite of eyes made it tense, but relaxed me. My mind took a devious tone. Yeah, I mean, I could I could go on and on with the lyrics. Uh, there's a sort of a more psychedelic song about the perils perils of alcohol, I think. Um, a bit of a slower song. Another another one finishing. Two more finishing side one. You've got heaven, which is quite soulful, very sort of almost spooky, eerie sort of keyboard sounds that presumably Paul Carrick has managed to get. It sounds almost like out of tune. It, it's difficult to describe unless you hear it. Woman's World, um, about a harried housewife. Is that love? Fin uh, open side two, with, you know, when the days when we had side one and side two. I know you do or not with, with your vinyls now, probably. Um, it's a song about Chris Difford's marriage, recent marriage, quick tempo, with the sort of piano-based ending that was Elvis Costello's idea. In fact, he played on the out on the outro as well. Um, it's a big favourite live. It's their only number one song ever in the world, 
because it got to number one in Israel, believe it or not. Um, he remembered, Chris Difford, he remembered being in a bathroom. This is the opening line of the song. I remember being in the bathroom and seeing uh, Cindy, that would be his wife, wedding ring next to the soap. Um, it wasn't particularly about our marriage, he says, but it started off a sequence of ideas in my head. He described it, which I quite liked, a comfortable pair of jeans kind of song. Um, Glenn Tilbrook said he was influenced by the Beatles musically. And it's been described as barbed, bouncy pop by all music. So, yeah, the first line is that you left my ring by the soap. Now is that love? You clean me out. You could say broke. Now is that love? And some of the, the little lines of throwing lines, like beat me up with your letters, your walkout notes. Funny how you still find me right here at home. Legs up with a book and a drink. Now, is that love that's making you think? F-hole, which uh, it's like a guitar, something in a guitar, you know, the F-hole. Uh, Violin, and yeah, the, the very, family. That's the one. And the, the very countryfied, quite a big hit, number four over here, labelled with love. Um, when the the girl falls for a, uh, a pilot in the war, disappears off to America, things don't go as planned. So, do it like I, again, I'll just quote the lyrics, but it's very country. It it certainly has sort of both musical and lyrical country hallmarks, if you like. So, there's a lot of drinking and heartbreak. The, the instrumentation is kind of a, a moseying sort of beat and Nashville piano. And the, the lines, again, during the wartime, an American pilot made every air raid a time of excitement. She moved to his prairie and married the Texan. She learned from a distance how love was a lesson. He became drinker. She became mother. She knew that one day she'd be one or the other. He ate himself older, drank himself dizzy. Proud of her features, she kept herself pretty. Drinks to remember I, me, and myself. Winds up the clock and knocks dust from the shelf. Home is a love that I miss very much. So the past has been bottled and labelled with love. And I'll just and another song I love on this, Mumbo Jumbo. There's one, a couple more I'll just mention. It's almost stage. I can imagine it in a stage musical, maybe of something like Oliver. It's, um, it's called Vanity Fair. And the closing song is a real classic band song. Uh, as in B-A-N-D, not B-A-N-N-E-D, um, called Messing Around, which is very rockabilly style. You've got not Jules Holland, but Paul Carrick with an amazing piano solo that sounds like it could be Jules Holland anyway. Difford has said it was brilliant, breathtaking, in fact. Um, and the guitar, Glenn Tilbrook, sounds like... Uh, I don't know, something from the 50s, Elvis Elvis with Scotty Moore and, and DJ Fontana or whatever. It sounds, as Chris Difford said again, the guitar sounds, actually he says it sounds very Scotty Moore with a distant amplifier. A great way to end the album, a great band song. It was an American single, but it wasn't a hit. Squeeze. I mean, they've made, they've made albums since, but East Side Story is the one to dig out if you want to that is i will be listening to that as soon as we get off this uh call 
very yeah, very intrigued listen out for the lyrics listen out for the lyrics they're great they are yeah, great. very poetic yeah wow i mean it like it, it's not often that you get really kind of pithy engaging lyrics and uh you know quite often it's the opposite so um yeah. any, anytime uh you, you're treated to that married to some um you know uh great you know solid music uh, it's a treat it is, and it is. I mean, he's been writing lyrics now probably for forty years, so I suppose you get the hang of it after a while. But it's a certain style, and it's the humour in the lyrics that get me. You it's need, what... like, you you need to have your uh, horizons expanded. You need some you know, literary input uh, in order to uh, to aspire to that sort of thing. Some, yeah, many lyricists don't uh, mm. don't ever have their horizons stretched like that. Uh, I, I know for a long time I was one of them. Oh dear! Oh dear! Yeah. Well, I, I, we tried to see Squeeze. Um, we had tickets, but it was during the first, I think it was the first lockdown. It kept getting put back and back and back. In the end, it was cancelled. So whether or not we'll ever, ever see them, I, I don't really know. It's one of the bands I'd, I'd love to see live, even though it's only really Tilbrook and Difford now. But yeah, good band, good album. Um, I think we ought to probably wind up, unless you've got anything else to say. I think we can wind up. No, that's think uh that's uh, some that's four right classic albums yeah every picture tells a story rod stewart band on the run paul mccartney and wings please please me the beatles and east side story by squeeze it's been great it's been fascinating actually i enjoyed that that's uh, that's great i'm uh, glad you feel that way uh i uh, <laughs> i certainly enjoyed it and uh, i think it, this, this could start a trend maybe in the future maybe we can think of other albums that we can discuss I'm sure Pete would be in on that as well, but I could just imagine some of the ones that he'd probably picked already, um, which you'd probably be into as well. So I'll probably let you two talk about the Zeppelins and the, and the, and the Yes or, 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 or whoever it might be. Yeah. But in the meantime, yeah, thanks very much, Austin. It's been great. It's been a pleasure having you on. And this podcast will be posted to the usual places over the weekend. So to Anchor, to Spotify, to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, etc. And one day we will be on the BBC, as Pete might agree with me on that. Um, so again, thank you very much, Austin. Hope you have a great day. Your day's just starting down there, of course. That's right. Have a you, great day have you enjoy your sleep. After, <laughs> after you've listened to Squeeze, of course. And yep. uh, yeah, so and for the meantime, it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. And a good morning. Not after. Cheers, Austin. <laughs>